welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations, to find my backlist of interviews, or to check out my summer reading guide for 2023, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. There is also a link to the summer reading guide in the show notes. I am thrilled to announce that I have launched a new Patreon level for those interested in accessing even more unique bonus content. My original level, called Page Turners, still includes my popular Early Reads program, where patrons have access to monthly early digital reads through NetGalley and exclusive pre-publication author chats, as well as monthly bonus episodes and fun surprise content. My new level is entitled Lit Lovers and includes all of the Page Turners benefits, as well as access to my new Traveling Galley program, where patrons have early access to at least three to four new titles a month that are in print galley form and are passed along to other members a monthly fiction-nonfiction pairing episode, a monthly episode containing bonus, spoiler-filled interviews with three authors, and finally, read-alike requests via email. Lit lovers can send me a book they loved, and I will respond with similar titles. This was such a popular and time-consuming add-on for me that I am moving it off of my main show. My true love is author conversations, and I want to be able to keep that focus on the show. Today, Riley Sager returns to chat about The Only One Left. His first novel, Final Girls, was a national and international bestseller that has been published in more than two dozen countries. His subsequent novels have all been New York Times bestsellers. He's a native of Pennsylvania, and he currently resides in Princeton, New Jersey. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water, once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. Welcome, Riley. How are you today? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. I'm so glad you're back. We last talked for Survive the Night, and I'm so happy to get to talk about The Only One Left because I absolutely loved it. Oh, thank you. I love it too. It's very exciting. It is just such a fun read, and I have so many questions. But before we dive into those, will you give me a quick synopsis of The Only One Left, please? Yeah, it's very, very loosely inspired by Lizzie Borden. And it is about um, this woman named Lenore Hope, who everyone thinks murdered her entire family when she was 17. And now it's 1983. Lenora is very old and in very poor health. And so 
a home health aide comes to live there and take care of her. And her name is Kit. And um, Kit discovers that Lenora can't speak and can't walk and can only use her left hand, which she uses to communicate on a typewriter. And one night she types to Kit, I want to tell you everything. And so Kit begins helping Lenora type up the story that led up to her family's murder and realizes that there's a whole lot more to the story than anyone realizes and that some of it might be putting her into danger in the present day. How in the world did you come up with the idea for this one? I don't know. I really don't. Like I just knew I was thinking about Lizzie Borden as one does and I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't really I think I'd been watching like Mysteries at the Museum or some history show or something but just thinking about Lizzie Borden in her old age and what if she needed someone to care for her and what would that person's deal be? Like what led you to be having, you know, to be Lizzie Borden's nurse? And are you scared of her? Do you think she did it? Do you like her? And all these things that come with being in close proximity and caring for this person. Like, you know, Kit is a professional caregiver. She has to feed Lenora. She has to bathe Lenora. She has to change Lenora's adult diaper. There are all these, she's in very intimate contact with this woman who truly might be a psychotic killer. <laughs> and, and how does she deal with that? And it's on Kit's mind a lot. I mean, Kit really struggles with that, especially early on. Did this woman do this horrible crime? And what am I doing here? Kind of thing. Because Kit has her own backstory. Kit has her own backstory. Yes. She has her own issues. And um, in some ways, she sees Lenora kind of as a reflection of herself, but also she sees Lenora as this truth. Like I I think she sees Lenora as like a walnut, so to speak. And you have to crack it open and there's like there's a kernel of truth inside, and she wants to get to it. But there's no way for Lenore to express it other than through typing out her story. Pounding out her story with her left hand on the typewriter. Yeah. And, and that makes Kit almost the surrogate for the reader. Because the reader doesn't know, is Lenora guilty? Is she innocent? Is she in between? Should we be scared of this woman who is completely helpless? Like it's it was very interesting and fun to come up with all the different variations of how Kit saw this woman and how the reader is going to see Lenora because I think they're going to love her and hate her and find her funny and find her scary and <laughs> all the emotions Lenora summons up. Yes. As a reader, you're trying to understand your own emotions. Like, what does this woman make me think as I'm reading the story? You know, what, what has she done? What is she doing now? What is happening? And it's such a gothic tale. Did you have so much fun with all the gothic elements? Yeah, I, I, I knew I wanted it to be a gothic novel because it just seemed to scream gothic to me. For sure. When I first got the idea, one of the first things I envisioned was this young woman in an old-timey nurse's uniform, complete with like the cap, standing in a crooked hallway. And that just seemed like such a gothic image. Yes, for sure. And I forgot about that part of it, that the whole house is leaning. And the higher up you go in the house, the more the house leans. Like it's just slowly potentially going over this cliff. 
Yeah, I I really wanted to. I was I was thinking of like Manderly from <laughs> Rebecca and the House of Usher. Like I wanted that the structure to be both of those things. Like this is a place. Something horrible happened here. There are still literally bloodstains in the carpet in areas. Right. And it's leaning ever so slightly toward the sea, and it might crumble one day, possibly soon. And is it haunted? There's a potential for it to be haunted. And just, it, I wanted this house to be almost like a character in and of itself. And it definitely was. I could tell you had a lot of fun leaning into the whole gothic aspect of the book. Pun intended. Literally leaning. because uh, Exactly. The house is- Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And I, I knew that there were certain tropes of the genre that when you think of gothic, you, you need like this massive house, like on sometimes it's on a cliff, sometimes it's on a hill. You need windswept cliffs. You need a sinister housekeeper. You need a sexy groundskeeper. Like you need secrets and it, it, all these different cliches. And then I like to kind of flesh them out and give them some interesting facets and make them not quite the cliche you thought they were at first. That's what I always love about your stories is that you go in thinking one thing and by the time you're done, you're thinking something totally different. And I loved the typewriter aspect of the story. How did that come into play? Like, how did you decide to include that? Yeah, that actually came out of necessity because I I knew from the start that I wanted Lenora to be very limited in her abilities because I thought that was a very cool thing for a character to have all of these secrets and this potentially murderous past, but from the outside just appear completely, utterly harmless. And so I like the idea of she is just an elderly woman in a gray nightgown, sitting in a wheelchair, looking out the window. And it's all the, you know, the, the still waters run deep, like all the depths to her that no one else knows. But the trouble when you have a character who can't talk and can't move, really, is how do you make her compelling? And so very quickly, I realized I needed some way to peer into Lenora's thoughts. And I originally thought, okay, I'll just have her narrate part of the story. And then I hit the idea of like, oh, I think it would be more fun if instead of narrating the story, she's literally writing the story. And so hence the typewriter. And I just thought it added a whole other level of of intrigue and even fun to the, the plot. It definitely did. Well, what made you choose the 1920s and the 1980s for the time periods? Yeah, I wanted it to be, well, it needed to be in the past because modern technology being what it is, all Kit needed to do was like Google Lenora Hope and she would kind of know the score and then she would leave immediately. (laughs) And so I needed some kind of way to, believable way to keep her in this mansion. And 1983 seemed to me like a time period that it's close enough that those of us who were alive at the time remember it fairly well. And even those of us who weren't born yet still have a general idea of what 1983 was like. But at the same time, it's also worlds removed from how we live today, technology-wise. And I also liked that it's the same way for the crimes themselves. Like The murders took place in 1929. And so 1983 feels like it's just centuries removed from like that era but really it's not and it was 54 years and a lot of the key players from that night 
are still alive. And so it seemed like a perfect amount of distance between the crimes themselves and our present day. So 1983 kind of hit that sweet spot. And there's so much happening in 1929 in the U.S. independent of the story. So it's kind of an interesting year to pick. Yeah, and that was intentional because I didn't want Lenora's story to be national news. Like I, I didn't want her to be like some like Lizzie Borden. I think everyone in this country probably knows the name. I didn't want everyone in this country to know Lenora Hope. She's very much a localized thing, and that's because the times the murders took place during the Wall Street crash. And so like America and the, the headlines were really focused on something other than like this murder on the coast of Maine. The murder of her family is totally eclipsed by everything that is happening on Wall Street and across the US. And so that that was a perfect way to hide that and have it not be national news. And also it might actually have something to do with the murders because they're a very wealthy family or they were <laughs> until a stock market crash. So it, it, it felt like a really serendipitous time to have these murders occur. No, I think that's right. I thought that that played in well. So there are a good number of twists. And I kept hearing that before I read the book, but they don't really come till toward the end. So I was reading and I was reading and I was loving it, but I'm like, am I missing the twists? I don't know what's happening. And then you get to the end and I'm like, oh, nope, here they all are. Do you have so much fun plotting that out? I mean, do, do you plot it out or do you just write and then all of that just comes out? How does that work for you? I do plot it out. Not all of it, but I, I always have a big reveal in mind because I need to know what I'm building to. Like, I can't just, let's see what happens. Like, I need to have a, a purpose. Like, we are leading to this point. And then when we get to that point, sometimes I surprise myself by seeing, oh, here's another opportunity for another twist. And in the case of The Only One Left, there were twists that I didn't necessarily think of until I reached this point. And I, but I think subconsciously I was building to them all along and just didn't realize it because it wasn't like I was trying to cram in new twists. It felt like organic, like, oh, yeah, this makes total sense that there'd be another twist here because of all the stuff that I did beforehand. So it's both, it's planning and then it's some, you know, on the fly figuring stuff out. That seem like they just fit right in with everything you've done. Do you have to go back and edit a lot once you have added in some of these twists because it makes a difference in terms of maybe you gave something away or maybe something doesn't make sense anymore earlier in the book? Yes. There are, there are some times when I do go back and it, it could be making things like just adding just one additional hint or sometimes I go back and add red herrings. I don't want to say too much, but there, there is a character in this book that changed quite dramatically once I kind of stumbled upon another twist. And it was like, it's for red herring purposes, where I was like, oh, I think this person should be really suspicious right now. And so I did go back and sort of change their, their scenes and their dialogue a bit. That has to be so much fun, both to include the clues or to pull out clues that you're like, okay, this maybe is a little too obvious, but also to create those red herrings. It, it is fun. The, the thing with the red herrings is that because I know they're not important to anything, I get bored writing them. Oh. <laughs> because I'm one of the people like, I want to write the good stuff. Like, let me write the juicy bits. So when I have to do write 
this is strictly to throw people off the scent of what's really happening, I get a little bored. And sometimes when I'm placing my clues or adding hints, because I know what they all signify, they seem glaringly obvious to me, and they are not for the average reader. You just led me into my next question. I was going to ask you, when you turn your book in or whoever you have read it, if you have a beta reader or if you're your editor, whoever the first reader is after you've done all of this, do they come back and say, okay, this gives away too much or you haven't given away enough? Or do you say like, I'm a little worried right here, gives away too much and you have to get their opinion on it because it must be hard because you're living in it. And so it's not fresh to you because you're the one creating all of this and thinking about it and messing with it and all of that. Yeah, it is very difficult. And I do have a beta reader, a friend of mine from high school. We've known each other forever and I trust her instincts. And she likes to read it blind. I don't tell her anything. When the book is finished and ready for someone to look at it, I just say, here it is. Read it if you had the time. And ironically, she did not read this one yet. Oh, really? I think she's reading it now. Yeah, she, she, was, very, she was very busy. But normally with all my other books, she just reads it and then she will text me her thoughts as she's read, like her, her theories and such. And it's fascinating. It's like a real-time glimpse into a reader's mind and to what they're thinking. And so far, like knock on wood, like I've always, always managed to like get her. Because I think that would be the hardest part would be to make sure you have balanced the not too obvious with the not obvious enough. And obviously, she would have to go in blind because if not, you would give things away. But that's so interesting. And that has to be so fun for you to be listening to her or reading her text and looking at your book and figuring out where she is and what she's doing. I bet that is just so much fun. It's, it's, I recommend every thriller writer get someone who will do that for you because it's great to see, like to get a text, be like, okay, page 185. I really think that this person should not be trusted and that they did something. And then I will know like, oh, okay, good. They suspect this person who has nothing to do with it. Or, oh, good. The one thing I don't want to see is when she gets it completely right. Like I'm dreading the day where she texts me like, okay, page 152. It is so obviously this person for these reasons and that she'll be dead on. And then I know I'll have to like rewrite the entire book. Yes, because that is no fun as a reader. At least I find it no fun as a reader to be that early in a book and know exactly what's going to happen. It just drives me crazy. Yeah. And it's, it's hard for me as a thriller writer because I do know a lot of tricks of the trade. And so I do tend to be able to see some things being telegraphed that like maybe average readers won't see. And so sometimes I am like, yep, this is where this is going. And gah, <laughs> why do I have to do what I do? <laughs> right. Oh, that's fascinating. I just think that's so interesting. And that's fun that you do have a beta reader that can do that for you and just real time be telling you, these are my thoughts here. These are my thoughts there. I just thought it was so much fun. I mean, I truly did. I had the best time and I got to the end and I was like, oh my goodness, what a great book. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I'm very excited for everyone to read this one because so far people really do seem to love it, which I appreciate so much because I love it so much. Like it's, there, there are certain books where I'm finished and they're getting ready for release. And I just think, oh, are people going to like this one? I don't know. This one, I can safely just stay. <laughs> like, I think most people are going to love this. I think so too. What surprised you the most while you were writing it? 
Oh gosh, that's a good question. Um, how emotional I think it got. There's a lot of these characters suffered a lot of like loss, whether it's personal loss or or loss of of you know years. Like Lenora has spent like five decades like in this bedroom. Like she's it's so I I wasn't expect I wanted to have like this fun gothic whodunit kind of thing with lots of twists and it is that but there there's also like some real emotional depth to it that i wasn't really intending that it just happened through the writing of it where it was like oh yeah kit has a lot going on in her life and there's a lot to explore here i was just gonna say that kit does really have a lot going on in her life and a lot of things she's still trying to come to terms with and deal with and understand yeah it, it was it was important to me that it wasn't just, oh, here's an old woman in a wheelchair. Is she a killer or not? That there was more to it than just Lenora's story. That Kit also has an equally compelling, complicated history as well. And that's one of the things that sort of bind them to each other, for good and for bad. I think that's right. And it's the reason that Kit is there. Because I thought having that addition... The backstory for Kit and why she really didn't have a choice for what she was going to be doing really helped because a lot of people would have probably said, I am out. And she couldn't really be out. Yeah. And that, that is a difficult thing that I, I seem to always be facing in my books because my books are not realistic. Like these, <laughs> these plots do not happen in real life for the most part. <laughs> so it is a matter of having it make sense that the character's remain in this situation because um, a normal well-adjusted happy-go-lucky person would be like nope i'm gone bye i don't need to see blood stains on the carpet every day right yeah this is i know enough see you later and so it is a matter of keeping people in the situation and giving them logical concrete psychological reasons for remaining in the situation and whenever i do that it does bring extra depth to their characters because they're not just there because the plot requires it. I mean, they are because the plot does require it, but they're also there for reasons beyond just plot mechanics. They have very valid reasons for being there. Yes, it's it's very psychological, logical in their mind, at least, reasons for why they are in this situation. I think that's exactly right. And I felt like Kits really made sense and kept her there. So let's talk about your stellar cover. Oh gosh, yes. I could talk for hours about this cover. It is amazing. I I don't use this word often. It's iconic. It's like an iconic cover. It's very well done. I just think it's fantastic. I I absolutely love it. The the fun secret is like we had trouble coming up with a title for this book. It's a joke with my publishers now, sort of, haha, that they never like my original titles. Because there are market concerns and there are public, you know, publicity concerns. Like, so it is a group effort to come up with these titles now because I'm at a level where you do have to think, okay, how does this look on a cover? How does this sound like in a snippet? Like that kind of marketing stuff that I wish didn't have to take place, but it does. And so we were debating which title to use. And so the designers created two covers based on like the two titles that we had in mind. And I saw that one. I'm like, oh yeah, that's the title. Cause that's the cover. Can you tell me the other title? I can't. 
that's okay. I figured <laughs> that I, I just thought I'd try. Because the, the only one left is a good one. The only one left really works. And the only one left is a great one. Yeah, no, no. I agree with you completely. The, the title and the cover work beautifully together. I was just curious because I'm always nosy. But yeah, I saw that cover. And I'm like, oh my God, this is, I mean, no offense to my other covers, many of which I love. This is my, the best cover they've ever created. Like Penguin Random House Art Department, geniuses. They are just brilliant. I have loved your other covers as well, but I think this is by far the best. And I think it really represents a story. And that's always a struggle for me when a cover doesn't match up with a story. It's so frustrating. And so I was just like, I love this cover. I really hope the book matches. And it does. It's, it's perfect. And the title's perfect. Yeah, it really is. And it, it came from the, the, the nursery rhyme or the, the schoolyard chant that, about Lenora. That, you know, it ends with, it wasn't me, Lenora said, but she's the only one not dead. And we knew the only one not dead was not a good title, but the only one left, that that's something. There was something to work with there. The only one not dead doesn't really roll off the tongue quite so well. And we haven't even talked about the schoolyard chant, which was another great gothic element, I thought. Yeah, that was the very first thing I wrote. Oh, really? Yeah, because it, it's if, where Lenora's name came from, <laughs> where... I, because Lizzie Borden has her schoolyard chant, I knew that Lenora needed her own rhyme. And I didn't even know her name was going to be Lenora. Like I just knew there needed to be a creepy rhyme associated with this woman. And so one afternoon, I just, before quite knowing the rest of the plot, just thought, okay, at 17, so-and-so, like it, and I just created these lines of, so- hung her sister with a rope. I needed something to rhyme with rope. And so that's how the name Hope came around. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And like, just like, oh, Lenora is a good name. It's old fashioned. It's vaguely creepy. It's also vaguely harmless. Like it's, it seemed like a perfect name for a woman in her seventies who may or may not have killed her entire family. <laughs> that name you're always looking for, for that type of person, right? <laughs> Yeah, it was like the perfect name and character combo. And Hope's End. I mean, I think Hope works really well as a last name just for the whole story as well. But before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Um, I have been so busy writing my next book that when I'm writing, I don't get to read all that as much as I want to. So my reading has been interrupted by my writing life. One I recently finished that I love, and I've been recommending it to everyone, The Last Word by Taylor Adams is so twisty, so good. It's violent. It's very much the Taylor Adams book, but it's, it's, it's very good and it keeps you on your toes and you just can't stop reading it. Okay. That sounds like a compelling read. I haven't read Taylor Adams before. He's, he's very good. I mean, his his books, they, they do get on the violent side, but this one is about a woman who, um, for reasons that you later learn, is just sort of isolated herself on purpose, house-sitting like a, a cottage on the beach with her dog as she spends her time reading just cheap, bad books on her Kindle. And she gives the book a one-star review. And, well, the author doesn't like that very much. Okay, I love that premise. That is a hoot. And so he comes there to get revenge. And it's, it just, it goes places you would never expect. Okay. I'm going to have to check that out though. The violence makes me a little nervous, but I will check it out and see if it works. Yeah. There's some, there's some 
there's some yeah if you just skim the violent part but yeah it's 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 a very twisty book okay good well thank you so much riley it was just delightful to chat with you and good luck getting the only one left out into the world i know everybody's gonna love it oh thank you so much don't you know that you're a grown-up I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts from a Page. If you enjoy this show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.